Good morning. Glad you're here. I'm Pastor Matt. Um, welcome to Marine Creek, or the creek as many of you have started calling it, um, which I think is kind of cool, you know. It's like we, we've, we have our own nickname. Um, one of my best friends nicknamed me the very first time he met me, not one I would have chosen, but uh, he, that's how he remembers. And so uh, I was talking with him this week, and that name has just caught on. My nickname with him is Mattress. And uh, so um, I will be the mattress giant, I guess. But, um, but um, if you got your Bible, go to Matthew 19. We are uh, teaching through the book of Matthew. What we decided when we launched the church is just to uh, let Scripture teach us instead of us trying to figure out how to, how to approach Scripture and what clever ways we can, we can teach Scripture, but just let Scripture uh, teach us and open ourselves to it. So we've been going through Matthew uh, since we launched the church a little over a year ago. We're at Matthew 19 today, um, so we're moving right along. The last, last week, um, we started a little mini-series within Matthew called It's Not About Me, and uh, today we're going to continue that. It's Not About Me, Part 2. And uh, this, is, this is a very painful process. Last week was a, a, a painful process because anytime we try to move ourselves from the center of our, our world, it can be a little rough and it can hurt a little bit. And I shared something last week that kind of revolutionized science. It was the Copernican Revolution. Uh, In 1514, Copernicus uh, started writing papers in a belief that the sun was the center of the universe and that the world revolved and everything in the universe revolved around the sun instead of everything revolving around the world. That was in uh, 1514. Revolutionized science. Um, Scientists were thinking, well, no wonder we couldn't figure stuff out. Um, whenever you don't have the center correct, everything else is going to be incorrect. And once you get what's in the center right, everything seems to fall into place. A couple years after that, in 1517, a guy named Martin Luther started what we know as the Reformation. Um, he just had enough of the church stuff and uh, began really, in, uh, after a scientific revolution, a theological revolution began to happen. And honestly, he started teaching more truth um, than the church would allow at that given time in history. And so we have just an absolute uh, revolutionary idea in theology and science happening in these few years. And the revolution in the theology was that man is not the center of the universe. God is. I mean, we, we moved from an idea that Jesus died for us so that we wouldn't experience pain and that we could get what we want to Jesus being the Son of God, that we exist for Jesus, that we worship Him in spirit and in truth. And when we get the center right, a lot of things tend to fall into place. You've heard me say this. I think if we keep our focus on Jesus and keep Jesus the center of things going on in our life, a lot of the church stuff uh, tends to be minimized, a lot of stuff in our life, a lot of the selfishness that, that pushes us in our jobs and in our marriages and in our families, that tends to be minimized because we start living as though we're created and that's with Jesus at the center of our life. And my hope is that you have that collision with Jesus this morning, that that revolution becomes a reality in your life. Our worship and our worship with Jesus is not how much do we like the music, which, you know, I still stand on this truth that our band and our worship, and Ryan does an amazing job with worship, but worship goes beyond our time of singing and, and, you know, watching guys play guitar that have more ability in their pinky than I have in my entire body. Um, 
And I can get so mesmerized by the musicians and their talent and their level that they can play at. But God desires worship to be about giving Him glory, not getting what I want. And that began uh, in 1517 with this revolution called the Reformation, is that worship and our relationship with God and our desire to love God is all about giving glory back to Him and not living in a selfish context of, God, you be my God. You know, I will, I will make you my God as long as you give me what I want. And, and God says, I don't play that game, kid. Sorry. If you've got kids, you understand that process. Um, kids can be a great reflection of humility and love, but they can also be a great reflection of selfishness. Remember, what's the word they learned right after mommy and daddy? Mine. Oh, my goodness. And then we spend the rest of their childhood trying to get a, oh, you've got to share, you know, you know. I mean, just, just if we could take a field trip down to our preschool department, I love our kids, but I mean, we're sinful by nature, you know, and that's, that's just inherent, and we will fight this selfishness until the day we die, and that's where we've got to keep Jesus at the center of our life, and so this is going to be a painful process. Um, like I said, shifting the focus off of me or off of you um, and letting Jesus be the center can hurt sometimes, but let me challenge you to go through the pain of this experience so that there's joy on the other side. I mean, too many times we get hung up in the, in the, in the pain and, and we tap out. We say, okay, God, I, I, can't, I can't handle it. I'm tapping out, God. And God says, I'm, all right, you know, I want you to move through this, but if you, if you don't feel like you can handle it, then all right. And we miss out on a lot of the joy of life and a lot of the, really the fullness and wellness that God desires us to live in. And so we're going to get into that. We're going we're gonna to get into that with Matthew 19 today. Let me make, make a note here. Copernicus did not make the sun the center of the universe. The sun was already the center. Copernicus proclaimed that the sun was the center of the universe. So what we're going to do in, in our teaching today and going through this material, which is tough, that we not make Jesus the center. He's already the center. But we as a church and we as people are going to proclaim that he is the center of our life. I mean, we're just proclaiming that which is already true. And we're going to live in reflection of that which is already true. All right? So here we go, Matthew 19. If you don't have a Bible, we've got some on the end of the rows for you. And if you don't own a Bible, then you are free to take that home, write in it, make notes in it, make it your own. And uh, that is our gift to you. But we're going to go through Matthew 19. Um, some of you who have already gotten here have already seen the first passage and have probably started to feel the tremors um, because this passage honestly has been used uh, and abused to use and abuse divorced people. And so I want to set this foundation right up front that this passage is not, and Jesus is not communicating this to beat up on divorced people, all right? So let's go into this and let's understand the truth. We're going to see what Jesus is really talking about through this passage. And if you've been divorced, which many in our, of our church have, if you've been divorced, then I've, I'm praying and I've been praying for you all week is that God's grace just washes over you and that you don't leave beat up and guilty because that's what religion is going to do and that's what the enemy is going to try to do to you, but that you experience God's grace. And so you go through the pain of experiencing God's grace so that you're healthy on the other side. Got it? Okay, let's lock and load. Here we go. Uh, verse 1, when Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee and went into the region of Judea to the other side of the Jordan. Um, large crowds followed him and he healed them there. Some Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife 
for any and every reason. Let me, let me kind of set some things up. Marriage is not about me, okay? When we go into this, this teaching and this little series, it's not about me. We have to understand that marriage is not about me. What is marriage primarily about? It is primarily about God's glory, okay? Marriage is probably one of the most beautiful pictures and realistic pictures on earth of God's character. Marriage, an unselfish, healthy marriage is a beautiful example of God's character and love for his church and for his kids. And the Pharisees are coming in to test Jesus here. Here's the the one thing that kind of gets me about, about religious people. They cannot stand for Jesus to be the center of attention. And it's not just religious people. Selfish people cannot stand for anyone else to be the center of attention. You know, it's like, okay, enough about, about me. Let's talk about me. You know, I mean, so you've got, you've got this going on here, and you've got the Pharisees kind of setting this up um, to begin testing him. And when they asked him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? They are asking him uh, a question about divorce because they were looking for an easy way out. Okay, this passage and what Jesus is getting ready to go into is he's, he's addressing a very specific question about divorce. He is not giving the full theological foundation on which divorce is and what it's not. And, and honestly, churches have built an entire uh, dinosaur from this little tooth and have used that to devour people who've been hurt by divorce. And that is not the case, Okay. We have to understand this. We're going to keep this in context. Jesus is being asked a very specific question about divorce, and Jesus is going to answer a question very specifically about divorce. And so, remember, marriage is all about giving God glory. So Jesus is getting ready to get into this. The reason they're coming to ask this, honestly, is there was two schools of thought um, within uh, the Jewish and religious leaders in the community. Um, There were two rabbis that, that had their teachings um, one was Rabbi Hillel, and Rabbi Hillel was a, conser- um, a liberal, we'll say. And his view of divorce is that you could divorce for any and every reason, men only. In this society, women could not divorce, only men could do it. I mean, and Rabbi Hillel would teach the guys that followed him. He did very good at creating selfish men, honestly. Because if, if their wives burned their food, if their wives' food was not good enough, if they refused to cook when they wanted, if they refused sex, if they, I mean, for any reason, all right, woman, you're gone. Next. And so, um, so that's Rabbi Hillel. And so some of these guys, they really liked following him because they could, they could get in and they could get what they want out of marriage. I'm so glad that has changed today. I mean, we don't experience any of that, which I'm glad that died with a lot of other things. And then Rabbi Shammai, um, Shammai or Shammai, um, Shamu, I don't know. But um, he (laughs) was more of the conservative type. He was our right-wing rabbi. And he would say, he told his followers, the only reason that you could divorce your wife was for marital unfaithfulness, was for her having an affair on you. That was it. And you had to prove the affair. And that became very popular, honestly, amongst men, because if he could prove that the woman had an affair on him, then he got to keep the woman's stuff. Because see, woman, a woman, a woman, a woman, a woman, okay, we'll get that right. We'll just edit that out. Um, women would come into the marriage with a lot of dowry, 
You see, their fathers were ready to get them out of the house. And they would be like, you can have cows and pigs and goats and camels and money and all this stuff. And the dude was like, nice. And if he divorced his wife, she got to keep her stuff unless he could prove marital unfaithfulness or prove that she had cheated on him and had an adulterous relationship. In that case, he got to keep her stuff. So what you have is the men trying to figure out how to to prove that their wives were unfaithful. So not only could they divorce, but they could get her woman, their woman's stuff. So again, I'm glad this has changed so much, you know, that we don't deal with any of this today. Um, That's a good thing, right? So anyway, what's going on is Jesus is getting ready to launch into his explanation. He's going to go, let me help you here. Marriage is not even about you. You're wanting to ask me this question. Marriage is not even about you. And here's what he does. He goes on in verse, verse 4. Haven't you read, which these are some of the most brilliant people of the day. Okay, these were Pharisees. They were teachers of the law. They had to know the law. Reading was what they did. Reading was like breathing. And then he just, this is, Jesus, this is a Jesus jab. He's like, we ain't looking about that. He said, haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. Who does Jesus put at the center? He says, it's not even about man and woman. It's the Creator. He brings the focus back to God. He says, you know, you're wanting to ask me questions. You're asking me to pick a side. Do you want me to be liberal or conservative in my answer to you? What the religious leaders are doing is let's get Jesus to pick a side and then we can beat him up for picking a side because he's supposed to be God. Jesus does not take sides. You know, when we have elections in this country, Jesus doesn't take sides. Here's what Jesus does. He steps in and he takes over because he's God. And he is going to get his way regardless. He gets what he wants. That's the sovereignty of God. And so Jesus steps in. He knows what they're doing. And he doesn't just pick a side. He takes over. Because marriage is not primarily about the people's joy, but about God's glory. Okay? He says, haven't you read at the beginning, the Creator? Bring that focus back to God. Marriage is about giving glory to God. Marriage is primarily about giving glory to God. That doesn't mean in our marriage that we should not have pleasure and enjoy it. I mean, we should. But that is secondary to us making sure God is glorified in our relationship. I think when we get involved with that, then we keep selfishness and self-centeredness out. And it keeps us from getting divorces for, for just absolutely ridiculous and selfish reasons. I mean, it's not, I'm bored. You know, I I really didn't know what I was doing when I got married. I thought I was in love, but I'm just, I'm not in love with you right now. I will be honest with you this morning. I I don't think Heather was in love with me when the alarm went off. I mean, what you see before you is beauty, but when this thing rolls out of bed in the morning, oh, it's hideous. I mean, there's just, yeah, it's, you don't, I I don't even want to get your imagination tracking that way. I can tell you Heather was not in love with me. I mean, the morning breath and everything, all that, you know. If you're not married, when you get married, the morning breath stays the same, honestly. It's not like TV where a couple can wake up in bed in the morning like, good morning, honey. You're like, whoa. (laughs) You need to have a Colgate morning. But I know Heather, is. she stays with me because Heather loves me, Okay. The in love, that's emotional. 
What Heather and I experience in marriage is spiritual. And if our marriage is primarily about giving God glory, then it's all secondary. Okay, and the selfishness starts to move and get out of the way. Let me, let me show you this little illustration. You know, this is like God's character. I chose two pieces of paper yesterday. Um, they're distinct, you know, they're different. Um, you can, there's a little bit of identity with them, but this is like marriage. They come together. What God has joined together, let man not separate, Jesus said. And he said that in the beginning, the creator made the male and female, and one shall leave his father and mother, and they shall become one flesh. You know, marriage is you maintain your identity. Okay, you don't give up your identity. But divorce is less of a legal transaction and more like surgery. Because if I try to separate these pieces of paper that have been glued together, I'm going to cause damage to one or both of them. And that's what divorce does. Divorce is not a legal transaction that you go before the judge and it's done. Divorce was not a legal transaction that Moses would issue a certificate of divorce and say, oh, it's done. There's no damage. It's all taken back. Divorce is more like a a delicate surgery that is going to leave pain. It's going to leave scars. It's going to leave hurts. And the grace of God, it's only the grace of God that we are able to get back healthy. This is also a beautiful picture of the Trinity, how God is distinct yet three in one. I mean, Jesus loves the Spirit. The Spirit loves the Father. That's the beauty of the Trinity. Our marriages are a reflection of the character of God. The appeal here is to stay married based on God's character, not based on our selfish desires, our needs, and our wants. Marriage... Is a, is a beauty, beautiful thing of God. And divorce should be the last resort, never the first option. Okay, let's, let's roll on. Um, in verse 7, I went over to the wrong chapter, I'm sorry. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. What he's saying, they're manipulating scripture here. They're saying, why did Moses command divorce? Moses didn't command divorce. Divorce was allowed to protect the sanctity of marriage. Understand that. Divorce was allowed to protect the sanctity of marriage. What is marriage about? About God's glory. If there is abuse, if there is, if there is unfaithfulness in the marriage... That is not a reflection of God's glory, and God allowed divorce so that the sanctity of marriage could be protected. These, the Pharisees are twisting and manipulating Scripture so they can get what they want, so they can put Jesus in the corner, they can get God in the corner and get what they want. Again, that, that never happens today. And Jesus goes on to tell them this. He said, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. Basically, you're boneheads. You become selfish and egotistical jerks. And then he says, but it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness and marries another woman commits adultery. This is where people are beat up in church about divorce. And let's, let's, let's keep this in context and let's speak the truth here. Jesus is answering a very specific question again about divorce. He's not giving the, all, the big all tell-all. Marital unfaithfulness, that word in Greek is porneia. I don't know if you've ever heard of porneia, but porneia has a broad and deep meanings. Here's what it means. This is in your notes. It is anything that severely and deeply violates the marriage covenant. 
Does marital unfaithfulness, does having an affair, yes, that violates the covenant. What about abuse? What about physical abuse and emotional abuse? Would you say that that violates the marriage covenant? Absolutely. I would even say that for someone to come to their spouse and say, um, I really wasn't thinking clearly when I married you and I lied and I thought this, you know, I thought this was different. I think that violates the sanctity of the marriage covenant. What Jesus is saying here is anything other than marital unfaithfulness, anything that other than something that deeply and severely violates the marriage covenant, not you getting bored and not you just saying, well, the sex isn't as great anymore, and so I'm just not into this anymore, and, and you deciding that in your selfishness you want to try something else, Jesus is saying, that's not a reason. That does not violate the marriage covenant. That's you being a bonehead. That's you being a jerk and an egotistical, selfish person, and that can be a man or a woman. I've seen them both. And what Jesus is saying is, that can lead to adultery because you, have not, you haven't even protected the sanctity of your marriage. And so you need to understand the consequences of what you may getting in, be getting into. Now, if you've been through a divorce and, and maybe God is working on you and man, you've been in that moment and yes, you were selfish, welcome to being human and you just gave up, I pray you experience God's grace because God's grace forgives adultery. God's grace forgives our selfishness. God's grace forgives us. And we have to understand that, that we keep that sanctity of marriage. Let's go on, verse 10 through 12. The disciples said, if this is the situation between a husband and a wife, it's better not to marry. They're like, this is just too hard. <laughs> Forget it. Jesus is saying this in verse 11. about what He's saying this about what he's going to say. Not everyone can accept this word, but only to those, those whom it has been given. For some are eunuchs because they were born that way. Others were made that way by men, and others have renounced marriage. Because of the kingdom of heaven, the one who can accept this should accept this. What Jesus is saying is singleness can be a calling from God. I am not called to be single. I, I would self-destruct, okay? I need my wife. I don't know if she needs me as much as I need her, but I need her. I mean, it, it would be bad, vile, it just... I. But he's saying singleness can be a calling from God. What he's saying is God will either call you to be single or to be, be married. And that doesn't mean if he's called you to be married that you get in this like the hound dog search, you know. You know, let God work on you to be the husband or to be the wife that he's created you to be. You know, before you walk down the aisle, start praying, God, make me the husband or wife that you've designed me to be so that my marriage gives you glory so that my marriage is a beautiful reflection of your character. The only way you should not get married is as if God tells you to not get married. Many have rejected marriage because they've been hurt by divorce. Don't, don't do that. Don't reject God's character and what he desires to do. If God desires for you to be married, and think about it, whether it's single or married, what is the best way God is going to get glory from your life? And that's how we should track, because marriage is not about us. You may be thinking, well, this is easy for Jesus to say he was single. Um, <laughs> Ephesians 5 tells us that Jesus is the, the, the groom and the church is his bride. And here's what I love about Jesus is, is he's married to the church and he will never divorce me. 
Do I, do I deeply and severely violate the marriage covenant with Jesus? Only since this morning. But His grace covers me. And He loves me. I mean, He could snap His fingers and make ten Christians absolutely better than I am in the blink of an eye. But He chooses to love me and work through me. And He chooses to stay in a relationship with me. He will not leave me or forsake me. Let's go on. Um, this is a little interlude. Um, power is not about me. Verse 13, Then the little children were brought to Jesus for him to place his hands on them and pray for them. But the disciples rebuked those who brought them. Jesus said, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. When he had placed his hands on them, he went on from there. This is a little interlude. I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time because power is not about us. Let me just give you a little bit of diagnosis here. It's in your notes. Here's the question I want you to reflect on. How do I treat the person whom I have, or how do I treat the person who has the most power over me? So think of your boss. And then how do I treat the person whom I have the most power over? Think about how you treat the waiter or waitress at the restaurant when you go to lunch after getting out of that meeting with your boss. I, I, I'm gonna, I will say this. I love going to dinner and lunch with, with folks in our church. And, man, I love to eat. I mean, I have to maintain this body. But if we're at a restaurant and you ever mistreat the person waiting on us, I don't think I will ever desire to have lunch with you again. Because that, that, I, I, don't, I don't tolerate that. Power is not about us. And so think about it. When Jesus said about the kids, the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. I mean, God loves humility. He gives grace to the humble. But if you got pride, man, that comes out in how you treat people who are subordinate to you. And that power hunger is unhealthy, and people have no desire to be around it. There's no amount of success that's going to mask that type of pride. So that's just your diagnosis. I have to go through it. I have to humble myself because I don't have good days all the time. I don't have good meetings all of the time. And I feel like I need to take it out on somebody when something's been taken out on me. But Jesus says, no, just be humble. I can, I can go and have that moment with God and get rid of all that junk. Let's go on. Uh, the next one is salvation is not about me. The rich young man, verse 16. Now a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Okay, the kids could offer Jesus nothing and they got blessed. This man came and he had everything. I mean, he was, he was hot. He had the good smile. He had money. He had, the, he had the chariots. I mean, I don't know. Like, I got four chariots. One's a Ferrari, you know. I don't know. But uh, it's like two horsepower. But um, that's, a, that's a man joke right there. Um, but he comes to Jesus with everything to offer, and he gets nothing. As a matter of fact, he walks away sad. And so verse 16, he says, what must I do? What good thing must I do to get eternal life? Let me tell you, that's what religion is going to teach us, is what good thing do you have to do? What thing do you have to do? How do you earn it? How do you work for it? How are you going to buy this? How are you going to figure out how you are going to have eternal life? And Jesus is getting ready to launch into this, and he's going to basically give this guy a spiritual MRI. He says this, why do you ask me about what is good? He replied, there's only one who is good. If you want to enter life, obey the commandments. Which ones, the man required, inquired. Jesus replied, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, honor your father and mother, and love your neighbor 
as yourself. What's happening is Jesus is telling this to the man knowing that he cannot keep all of these rules. See, religion's going to be like, here's your list of rules. Here's your checklist to be holy. Good luck with all that. And Jesus is hoping to, to give this guy the truth and say, here's the rules. You're not going to be able to, to, to meet these. It's about mercy. It's about calling on the mercy of the court because he cannot maintain it. This is where Jesus starts to drive into this spiritual MRI. God knows where he's at. He wants the man to come to a realization of where he's at. And the man's like, all of these I've kept. What do I still lack? And Jesus starts to drive this in. And here we go. Here's where he's going to challenge it. Jesus is challenging him on the basis of loving your neighbor. Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, go sell all your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. Let me teach you this spiritual principle called imputation. This is in Christianity. This is found nowhere else and no other religion in the world. Imputation. It's basically this. It is Jesus having a positive infinity account. Okay, he's got, he's got everything. He has absolute perfection, absolute righteousness. And here's my account on this side. I'm not only at zero, I'm a negative. I mean, I'm in debt. There is nothing I can do to get, even get back to zero. Okay, there's, I mean, it is, it's not paycheck to paycheck. I am spiritually broke. The key with imputation is to be a spiritual gold digger. I, don't, I mean, so, no other way to explain it. But what I do is I call on Jesus, grace and mercy, and I humble myself and say, God, there is no way I can do all this without your mercy, without your grace. And here's what happened. This is imputation. Jesus takes what's in his account and he moves it over to mine. I mean, think about this. What's infinity minus one? Still infinity. Jesus takes his righteousness and moves it over to me. So when I stand before God, when I have called upon the mercy of Jesus, God judges me based on Jesus, not based on me. Because my account, I can't even get it back to zero. I have no way to even try to get it back to zero. It's a debt I can't even begin to pay. That's imputation. And that's what he's wanting this man to do. He's like, you've got, you've got this. Realize where your heart is and that you can't do all of this so that you will call upon this mercy and this grace. And Jesus is challenging him about loving his neighbor because he said, love your neighbor as yourself. He said, I've done that. All of these I kept. What do I lack? And Jesus is challenging this. He's saying, go sell your possessions and give them. If you love your neighbor as yourself, then you're not held by your possessions. Go get rid of them, give them to the poor and come follow me. You see, the man was wanting God's stuff without getting God. He wanted the eternal life and he wanted to keep his stuff, but he didn't want God. Jesus wanted the man. He wanted a relationship. That's why he said, come follow me. I want to know you. I, I really believe this, that if the man had said, okay, I can't keep this, Jesus, help me. I repent. Jesus is he's trying to drive him to find repentance and to humble himself and say, I can't do this. If he would have done that, I, I'm just speculating. There's no scriptural proof. But I think Jesus would have let him keep his stuff because the man would be like, all right, I don't need that. It's all about you. Jesus, you're the center. The stuff is just extraneous. I'm really convinced of this truth, is that God does not need us broke, but he needs us broken. 
He needs us to come to him with humility. It's not about the money. It's not about how much money you can give to be holy. It's not about what list of rules that you can follow to be holy. It is solely about the grace and love and mercy of Jesus because Jesus wants the relationship. Verse 23 Then Jesus, or the rich young man went away because he had great wealth. He was sad. He couldn't let go of it. Then Jesus said to his disciples, I'll tell you the truth. It is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. <coughs> when the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and asked, who then can be saved? Let me... Let me share something. I used to think this passage, the, the eye of a needle was a gate within a gate in a city wall. And I used to believe, based on context and study I've done of Scripture, was the only way that camel is going to go through that smaller gate was it had to get on its knees. It had to humble itself and go through. Well, <clears throat> this week, in the original Greek translation, he's talking about a sewing needle. I mean, I... I thought about bringing a needle, but I don't know that I could hold it here and see the eye, and I don't think many of you could either. But he's talking about an actual needle used for sewing. He's taking a camel, which is the largest thing that he could probably see at that point, and then a sewing needle, and saying, it's easier for a camel to do this than a rich man to go through heaven. Why? It's not about the money. We try in churches, we love to make it about the money. I mean, we really do. It's just, it's disgusting. I want to, I want to, I throw up in my mouth a little bit every time I hear that it's about the money. It's not about the money. I'm sick of that. I'm, oh, thank you, Doug. I'm sick of people being beat up about the money. I mean, quit it. What Jesus is saying here is this man could have entered heaven, but he, it takes a miracle of God. The only way the camel's going through the eye of that needle is God has to do a miracle. When they said, who can be saved? Jesus said, with man it's impossible, but with God all things are possible. God created the camel and God created the needle and God can make it happen. I cannot make it happen. No matter how much I desire and want and pray and hope and try to convince and love that camel through that eye of the needle, it ain't happening. I can't even cut it up small enough to force it through. <laughs> okay? This, this is something important. The only way it happens is God does a miracle. And I think we get so immune to the miracles because God does them all the time. And we're like, oh, yeah, yeah. Gave his life to Jesus. Wait, yeah. No, understand, this is a miracle, okay? If, if I had a camel here and a needle and it went through, we would be astonished. Okay, let's, let's be astonished when someone humbles themselves and calls on Jesus and proclaims him as the center of their life so that they can go through that eye of the needle. This is something you can't fake either, okay? I mean, the camel's not going, yeah, I went through it. Look, look, see back there? I went through it. You just didn't see it. You must have blinked. It happens like that. No, I've never met an honest camel, trust me. You can't fake it. God gives you the faith, and God gives you the ability to say, take me through the needle. Do what you can do. Do only what you can do, God. And begin to change me and make this beautiful. So salvation is not about us. God gets the glory from it. I mean, think about it. 
mean, God gets the glory for, for, for the camel going through the new. God gets the glory for, for a life connected with him. God gets the glory from our marriage. God gets the glory from our humility. And I love it. And the disciples are like, well, who then can be saved? And then, then Peter, you know, good old Peter speaks up. And he says, Jesus, we've left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? I mean, okay, what's in it for us? If it's not about me, what, what do we, or do we get some kind of hookup out of here? And then in verse 28, Jesus throws a bone to him. He encourages the disciples. He says, I tell you the truth, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. He's encouraging the disciples. Now, here's an encouragement for us. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or fathers or mothers or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. I get about 65 to 76 years on this earth. That's the average lifespan for me. So I can get all I can in 65 to 76 years and I can enjoy it as much as I can if I make it all about me. When I make it all about Jesus, he says, look, you get not only get more than you can imagine, you get an eternity to enjoy it. And he's saying, there's your reward. And then he says, so I'm giving you this encouragement. And then in verse 30, but many who are first will be last and many who are last will be first. But it still ain't about you. In my life, the most happiest moments have come when it's been not about me. And in life, some of my most miserable moments have come because I've made it all about me. And whether I make it about me or not about me, the truth remains that Jesus is the center. And so my challenge to, to me first and to all of us is to proclaim Jesus as the center of our life. You know, live in that truth. Let that truth revolutionize how you see your world. Let it revolutionize your marriage even if you're not married, let it revolutionize the marriage that God has designed for you. If God has called you to be single, let it revolutionize your relationships and how that reflects the glory of God. And some of you, man, God may have you at the eye of the needle. I can't make it happen. And I'm going to pray, and, and yes, it, it is through prayer. It's asking God to do a miracle. He gives you the faith, and he does the miracle. And that's the beauty of God being the center of the the universe. And so it's not about us. And let's quit making it about us. Let's pray. God, we love you and we thank you that you are the center. And we put you at the center. We proclaim you as the center. God, right now, I mean, some, some in this room have gone through divorce. I know. And I know that pain and I know that hurt. And I know that even when it is final, there's still scars, there's still remnants. It's, it's as though the surgery are just, is just as new and fresh as the day it happened and those scars and bruises hurt. And so, God, I just ask for your grace and your mercy uh, just to pour over them. God, that your Holy Spirit comforts them. Jesus, thank you for never divorcing us. That when we get crazy, when we get selfish, that you forgive us and that 
you desire for us to be your beautiful bride. God, would you forgive us for when we get selfish in our marriage when we make it all about us. Forgive us for abusing our our power and not being meek and humble. But we destroy people when we get the opportunity. Forgive us for that. God, we thank you that you are the center of the universe, that you created everything, that you intimately know everything, and that you desire a relationship with us. That you desire that miracle of life being a reality. So God, some in this room may be right at that eye of the needle. God, we just pray and we say these words that Jesus, you are the center. Be the center of my life. I don't know how you do it, but I'm asking you to take me through that eye of the needle. Make me a new creation. I'm tired of following the rules. I'm tired of trying to figure things out on my own. I want to follow you. I want to know you, Jesus. God, the beauty of the truth of Scripture is that when we ask for that, you take us through the needle. And in your love and grace, you never put us back through. You never walk away from us. So, Jesus, we love you. We thank you for your teaching. We thank you for being honest and being truthful and not taking sides but taking over so that that we can be encouraged. God, even that, that some of the things that you taught us are painful, but we go through that pain so that we can experience health and joy. We love you so much. God, for those hurting in this room, I pray that you bring us together so that we can be the family you've called us to be. So that just as one hurts, we all hurt. As one rejoices, we all rejoice. They got through everything. Through everything, we give you the glory. So we humble ourselves before you now and tell you you're the center. We proclaim you as the center of our life. And we pray all of this in the name that is the center, and that is the name of Jesus. Amen.